welcome to Writers Festival Radio. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers Festival, and I'm broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe. It gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin Street, and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. Today, we'll hear a conversation between festival founder Neil Wilson, who runs our Republic of Childhood Youth Literacy and Self-Expression program, and Iceland's Andres Nair Magnusson. He's a writer and documentary filmmaker who ran for president of Iceland in 2016 with environmental issues on his agenda and came in third. Andres' work is translated into more than 30 languages and is available in more than 40 countries. He's written novels, poetry, plays, short stories, and essays. He's a popular public speaker, and his third documentary as a co-director is Apocalypse, which is complete and will likely be released later this year. His most recent book in English translation is On Time and Water, which works to reframe the climate conversation and asks us how we can address an issue that seems so overwhelming and abstract, but is as urgent as life and death. Here's their conversation. I'd like to begin, Andre Snare, by going back a few years when you were on a uh, tour with your 2009 book, Dreamland, and you gave a lecture in Munich and participated in a panel discussion with uh, Wolfgang Lucht, a professor and celebrated climate scientist. One could argue that your conversation with him compelled you or propelled you to start thinking about on time and water. Yes, I had been uh, involved with more like uh, local issues and local conservation of uh, biodiversity and uh, landscape here in Iceland when it came to the aluminum industry and destruction of rivers and ecosystems. But uh, I didn't feel I had authority and, uh, you know, I could understand the river, I could understand the valley, but I didn't feel like I had authority to take uh, climate data and interpret that into some kind of a writing form or I didn't feel I, I felt like it was up to the scientists to have the authority. My, I'm from a family of doctors and nurses and, uh, and uh, they don't like when people are messing with, you know, pretending to understand health issues or, or, uh, or, or give medical advice. So uh, I had kind of respect for the, the boundaries there, but, uh, Wolfgang, he's a very, uh, he's, a, he's a great thinker of putting things into perspective. And he used lots of mythology in his talk and, uh, and comparison to all sorts of uh, issues that are uh, 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 fossils and, and giving us kind of a sense of deep time. And he asked me, why don't you write about climate change? And I said, I don't feel like I have, you know, I'm allowed to do that, but he said, People don't relate to data, people relate to stories, people relate to perspective. And paradigm shifts don't happen because some data emerged, but because a new idea was filtered through music, through uh, visual arts, through writing, through poetry, through all sorts of cultural forms. And, and, uh, and that's how paradigm shifts happen and understanding doesn't, part of the understanding comes from the data, but uh, other aspects of this of the uh, understanding comes through uh, 
through culture. So he basically gave me authority to write and, and also offered help of uh, kind of uh, giving me access to the latest discoveries. So, so I'm using lots of, of uh, mythology, poetry, personal perspectives, but the base of everything is, is the newest climate science. Well, you, you write <clears throat> in the book that, uh, and I think many of us who are, would consider ourselves literate, that uh, you know, climate change has become white noise, and and you you talk about it maybe uh, referring to it more as a black hole. I mean, it sucks the language, it sucks the ideas out of out of our universe, out of our narrative. So, um, you you talk about finding, developing a new narrative, a new language, uh, a kind of myth mythological language, and. You say, I need to write about things by not writing about them. I need to go backward to move forward. Yes, that's, so the book is very much about, uh, almost like an experiment. It's, it's a search for language. What, what language, you know, if I can say that destruction in a valley in Iceland was enormous. Uh, I've already finished that word. You know, what, what do I go and what, how do I say that climate change is, what is, what is climate change if one valley, valley destruction is enormous? Is, uh, you know, I, I've already finished the, the highest word that I could use in my vocabulary. So the idea is that exactly like a black hole, no light can ex escape from this black hole. And, uh, and the only way to understand a black hole is to look at the periphery. The idea was that I can't just talk about the data or say the things. I have to try to put them into perspective. And for example, I'm talking about my grandchildren mm. and, 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 uh, and uh, climate change is very much about our grandchildren. But the problem is that they are totally unloaded. That is, they don't exist and they, uh, they haven't lived their life. So they're unloaded, of, they're not loved because we don't, they're not born yet. So you can't love anybody that doesn't exist. So it's this, and how do you imagine or, or feel urgency towards somebody that is uh, imaginative? So I found out that it would maybe be better just to write about my grandmother that is in the, the other direction. And she is fully loaded of love and experience and stories and wisdom and, and, and all, she's 97 and, uh, and still in very good shape. So, uh, so, so instead of writing about my grandchild, I write about my grandmother uh, to understand the, the size because language can't go further than enormous. Uh, I, I have to maybe twist the angle and, uh, and ask people, you know, how normal is a climate conference, for example? You know, how, how normal is that? Uh, did Genghis Khan, uh, Ramses II, Caesar, none of those uh, megalomaniac leaders of the world believed that they could uh, melt glaciers. You know, they, they were powerful, they, they had empires, but, but they were not so crazy that they thought they could melt glaciers. Uh, mythology, talks about times when, you know, floods are happening, glaciers are melting or, or fires are burning. And we are much closer to a mythological situation 
where the fundamentals are shifting. So I, I'm asking like uh, how normal, what, what is the word global warming? What does that mean? Why, why do we call it that? Who, who decided it was called global warming? And, and what, what uh, emotions does that bring to our mind? Or, or what vision do we have when we hear that? And uh, in a way, it's almost like the word Holocaust in the year 1930 versus 1960. And in a way, we could also use another word. We could call it the great water shift or something because, or, or the, the great water disruption because basically all elements of water from glacier to groundwater to oceans to rain to snow, all elements of water are going out of balance uh, in an unheard way. So, uh, so I'm using, trying to use language and storytelling and, and perspectives uh, metaphors. I'm searching for the ho holy cow in the in the Himalayas, the <laughs> yes, the, the frozen cow of uh, Nordic mythology. That never made sense for me. How how could the world start with a frozen cow? That that's that's Nordic mythology. Uh, it, it sounds like a whispering game that went wrong. But if you look at uh, the role of the glaciers in the Himalayas, how they keep the snow during the rain season and release this, this milky white water when you need it the most. Uh, and the, the water is full of sediment and it's a nourishment for the fields and the crop. So suddenly, of course, this, these glaciers, these frozen cows giving this milky white water to uh, 1 billion people down in uh, India, Bangladesh, uh, China, Nepal, Pakistan. What happens if, if, uh, and if you look at the Himalayan range, it's, it's the big milking cow of, of the world. And what happens if these glaciers are disrupted, if they vanish, if they uh, recede? We could be seeing the biggest humanitarian crisis that uh, maybe humanity has faced in, in history. You and the, the Dalai Lama have a, a bit of a, an inside joke, if you will, about the frozen cow. Um, I was very moved uh, when he asked to see you and then invited you to his home, um, and which, of course, you returned to uh, for a second visit with him. And um, he was quite intrigued with how you could draw the parallels between the glaciers and the mythology of, of the Viking or the... Iceland and and his um, Himalayas, you know, where the gods live. Yeah. Yes. Well, I, I that that search came uh, through this invitation. So the the book is is very much about uh, coincidences and chance. It's it's uh, mm. it's almost like a Forrest Gump story or something. <laughs> it's like a. Uh, so the coincidence with meeting the climate science scientist uh, leads to thoughts, and then I'm invited to interview the Dalai Lama. And that leads me into looking into mythology and finding this strange comparison that uh, Nordic mythology believes the world started with a cow, and in, in Hindu mythology, they have Kamadenu, the, uh, the world cow. Yes. And, uh, and the foundations of that cow are the Himalayas. Uh, so, so the feet, the, the feet of that cow are the Himalayas. And, 
and uh, and 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 suddenly uh, we understand that the Himalayas are the source of life for a billion people. And uh, so I was using kind of these stories as a starting point in the interview with His Holiness. And uh, well, he he basically made fun of me when I asked him about. <laughs> So, so I, he said, we all come from a mother, but some people think we came from a cow. <laughs> like, uh, so, uh, because he's also, uh, he's very rational and uh, scientific and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and yeah, very, very rational scientific. So he, uh, even though I, he, he, and also practical in a way. So, but also, I kind of understood from his understanding also that, of course, the Tibet issue is very important. But mm -hmm. uh, if global warming goes out of uh, control, then a free Tibet is 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 nothing within a world in chaos. So so uh, you start to understand that this is an issue that is a fundamental issue. Maybe, maybe the hyper issue under all other issues. So, you know, almost anything we care about, our, our interests, our issues, uh, they all depend on us getting some kind of a, uh, getting some kind of control over this uh, uh, climate situation. You, you write, uh, it's 2020 now, one year after the movie Blade Runner takes place, five years after the future in Back to the Future, 36 years after the Orwellian year 1984, we are so hypnotized by progress and revolutions that our relationship with the future is characterized by irresponsibility. For us, a century is like a whole eternity, a thing beyond imagination. So I guess this really addresses um, how we have become addicted or hypnotized and are failing to take on our responsibilities for our children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. Yes, so culturally, you know, you and me, we, we, are, we are raised with... Uh, the year 2000 as some kind of a far, far away uh, utopian future. And, and suddenly we're like, uh, we still believe that we're relatively young, but, uh, but we're like 20 years past this future. And, uh, and uh, universities are full of people born in the year 2000. Mm. And culturally we have never updated long-term thinking. And, and my idea, in the book, one of the fundamentals of the problem is that when a scientist says 2070, 80, 90, 100, we feel no urgency. We don't, we, we're totally reckless against these dates. We, we don't feel responsibility. We don't feel connected. We don't feel responsible. And we don't have any policy, you know, economics, they, they, they don't, they can't calculate worth of anything in the year 2070. Everything beyond the next, beyond a 30-year investment just, just doesn't count. So, uh, so we're in this paradigm of uh, short-term thinking and, and short-term gain, which has 
maybe brought some gain and some some uh, some progress or, or whatever. But uh, we're so reckless in because everything that we're emitting now is is uh, creating a bigger burden for people up in the year 2070, 80, 90, and even us in our older years. But uh, so culturally, I thought you can't really talk about climate change without addressing this fundamental problem of, of, uh, of being so disconnected to the long term. So that's how I do these uh, thought experiments of uh, when is someone still alive that you will love? So I, I sit with my grandmother in, uh, in her kitchen and with my daughter. And uh, we calculate, you know, when will my daughter become as old as grandmother? And we find out 2,102. And, uh, and my daughter, like she had never calculated that. She was 12 at the time or no, 10 at the time. And, uh, and then, okay, 2,102 when she becomes as old as grandmother. And if she has a favorite 10-year-old in her life, when, when is that person becoming 94 as my grandmother was? And my daughter comes up with a date 2,186. So we're just thinking about in the kitchen. Imagine that she might be sitting in this kitchen talking to somebody that will remember her in the year 2,186. And it's not an abstract calculation. It's just a very likely, it's a very likely situation. That's 262 years across time. Yes. Yeah, so, so my... My daughter can touch my grandmother and be influenced by her uh, her life story and her uh, her knowledge and her uh, presence. And my daughter will probably be able to influence somebody that will still be talking about her in the year two thousand one hundred eighty six. And that person might have first hand stories from somebody that was born in the year two thousand. No, 1924. So 262 years is the time that you can touch with your bare hands. And uh, so that was uh, the attempt, the thought experiment in my book was to take climate science and, and uh, mythology and, and, but then also take this super personal point of view, this just, uh, the, what, what is our, uh, like, in, how is our intimate time? What, when is someone still alive that you will love? And, and if you calculate that and you start acting accordingly to that, then you will have dates like 2,150 almost in your intimate, in your intimate realm. It's amazing. And when you, you certainly humanize the conversation, which I think is a, a great contribution to this whole question of questions, um, uh, you know, how do we find solutions? How do we mobilize the world to do something when, you know, the corporations are, are basically making profit and they're only concerned, it seems, you know, each quarter they have to continue to make more profits for shareholders. And of course, we know the politicians, even the great politicians, uh, you know, find it very difficult to step away from the four-year election cycle and, you know, not take, even though, you know, here you are writing in a way that 
anyone can understand. You're not talking like a climate scientist uh, and many of the, the, the books, you know, that are loaded with statistics and graphs and parts per million, you know, which, you know, 20 years after the conversation began, we're, we're all glazing over for the most part, but we do know somewhere in our subconscious, if not in our consciousness, that, you know, things are getting worse and we need to, we need to do something quite drastic. We need radical revolutionary change. Yes, that is, that is a, a fact. And I think actually we might be surprised by how fast the change starts when it starts finally. That is when we have uh, kind of gone over the curve because I think the generation that is now in the universities that went through the corona crisis where uh, all economics were kind of turned turned on their head and suddenly the state was just uh, printing money and and making all sorts of rules and regulations for the common good i think they will ask this question of uh, of uh, i think they will ask this question how mm. how why don't we do that towards the, uh, the climate crisis. And I don't think when they are paying into pension funds to be paid out in the year 2070, I don't think they will have any longing to, to uh, uh, and, and when, they, when they see that will not be spent on the golf course, but on, on some climate protection gear or something, or, uh, or coastal uh, erosion, you know, spending or something. I think they will think, I, I think this generation will be much closer to the year 2100. Yes. And and I think they will start acting responsibility, responsibly in that kind of, uh, because I don't think any generation wants to be totally self-destructive. And I think, you know, much of the infrastructure that we live with was in a way built with good intentions of wanting to, uh, you know, ha- live in prosperity or, or make life easier for uh, your children or your grandchildren. And we're in this impossible situation where almost every job we have and all our activity is just not, not leading into that direction. And, uh, and that dilemma will cause lots of cultural kind of... Uh, Lots of cultural response will come from that. Lots of Me Too hashtags of uh, of how you're entitled to do things, and uh, lots of laws and regulations, and lots of uh, lots of progress, of course, also in technology. And and uh, so, I think lots of disruption will happen. But I'm in general, I, I want to be optimistic that because scientists have told me that. Uh, it is possible, at least uh, technologically possible, to meet many of these challenges. It is possible within uh, even some of our democratic systems to do that, and and uh, and so I want to be optimistic that that we will find this fine line and 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 make this happen. Well, you you have a very dramatic wake up call that stands out to me and and you say in this race 
everyone wins or everyone loses. And uh, I'd like to, as we get to the end of our conversation, Andres Nair, look at the um, apocalypse now. When I first read this, this is the COVID-19 postscript, which you wrote uh, May the 10th, 2020, uh, almost a year ago. You, you called it apocalypse now. And you say that we have stopped. I never imagined it could happen. And in that pause, you do something amazing in the sense of coming full circle with this book and you know some of the themes that have been percolating through your work or what I know of your work. Because this, the book starts, you know, you're you know, graduate, it doesn't start, but it part way in, you get a job at the Institute for uh, Medical Studies at the University of Iceland and you you come across, you know, the King's Book and other ancient texts. And this sort of blows your mind in terms of language and storytelling. And then I'd like you to, if you wouldn't mind, coming full circle and talking about how you and your co-director during the pause when all the filming was stopped, how you basically jumped in your cars and you did a little bit of a, de a decameron. Yes, uh, yeah, that's that's uh, what we did, uh, kind of unintentionally. So uh, we had just finished a documentary film uh, called "The Hero's Journey to the Third Pole," a, a bipolar musical documentary with elephants, which is a it's beautiful. Uh, it's a yeah, thank you. It's a mental health awareness film, and uh, and uh, so we were just about to premiere that one when. Uh, all theaters closed and that was very disappointing but then uh, we asked ourselves okay if we are documentary filmmakers and uh, we know how to do things should we uh, frown upon being uh, alive during very historical moments shouldn't we isn't it our duty to capture that so we went out so i called the media rental the uh, camera rental and and all cameras were in house so nobody was capturing what was happening so we asked them, can you give us the best camera? Because they're all available. Just give us the best camera, the best lens, and we'll get a good uh, cinematographer. And uh, we went out and we first just to capture the void, but then the void was kind of boring. Or, you know, it was, <laughs> it was just a void. And then we asked uh, artists that had lost their stages to uh, fill the void for us. So, uh, and use it as a new stage. So we had a dance on the busiest cross section, like a intersection in, uh, in Reykjavik where 60,000 cars should normally go every day, but there was nothing. And uh, we had a dancer go through uh, the airport and out into the runway. And, uh, and then we talked to philosophers and uh, you could say, uh, you know, people, poets, and uh, thinkers, asking them what, what if they felt any higher meaning in in, in living through this uh, disruption, this this stop. What what does this stop mean? Is it uh, in a in a spiritual, political, you know, poetic way? What what does it mean to be living uh, in a world that is in, enchanted? So we took lots of interviews, and suddenly. We had created this Decameron, which is the, the uh, Boccaccio book from the plague in Florence, 
where 10 people are tell, telling tell, 10 stories for 10 days. Suddenly we had created some kind of a, and, and suddenly the, the first lockdown was almost over when, when, uh, when, we, uh, when we had been filming and, and very occupied on, on capturing this. And we knew that we had to capture it in the moment because in hindsight, people wouldn't re remember what they were thinking. So in the moment of total un uncertainty, we, we created a film when almost nobody was doing any filming. The book is on time and water, and it's a, a bit of a parable. I, I read it twice, and I've been flipping through it. The, the, I, I have an advanced reading copy, and it's pretty, it's pretty dog-eared, and it's pretty beaten up because I've been traveling with it and uh, trying to um, assimilate the vast vision uh, of, of deep time and uh, how we sentient beings are, are need to step up to the plate. We're changing the world. And um, I'd like to perhaps leave with, with a, uh, something that indigenous people, uh, it's uh, if, if we take care of the planet, the planet will take care of us. And I'm, I'm hoping that um, your children and uh, our children and grandchildren will take the challenge and perhaps uh, as a result of, of their innovations, you know, we can, we can have a new age, a dawn of, of a new era where we can live, you know, together in harmony with all living beings. Yes, I hope so. This is actually also, this what you said is, it's in our film also because we have a photographer that uh, has been uh, living a lot with uh, Greenlandic hunters. And, and it was kind of the negative of, of what you said. Uh, if you kick nature, it will kick you back. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That was the wisdom from the Greenlandic hunters. That was Neil Wilson in conversation with Andres Nair Magnuson about his latest book on time and water. As always, I want to thank you for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. It's always a good idea to buy a book. And of course, you can't go wrong supporting local independent booksellers. Our spring season runs through June and it's all available online at writersfestival.org. So all you need to do to connect with some of the world's most acclaimed authors is click play. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast and don't hesitate to recommend it to a friend. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. Your financial support will allow us to continue to bring you the world's most interesting authors and thinkers. I want to thank the Ottawa Public Library, the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubé. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm your host, Sean Wilson. Thank you so much for listening. Mm -hmm.